1: This episode of Bookmarked is brought to you by Libro FM. Get two books for the price of one with your first month of membership using the code BOOKSTACKED. Again, use promo code BOOKSTACKED when you start your membership at Libro.FM. Or check the show notes for a quick link to get
0: started. Offer only valid for new members in the US and Canada.
1: Hi everyone, my name is Chelsea Regan and welcome to the Bookmark Podcast. Today I'll be talking with Robin Schneider about her latest young adult novel, The Other Merlin, a feminist retelling of the Arthurian legend with several new twists. I am so excited to have Robin here to get to talk all about it. So, let's get started. Hey Robin, thanks so much for chatting with me today. Sure, I'm so excited to chat with you. I was hoping we could start off with you giving our listeners just a quick introduction to
0: who you are and what your newest book is about. Okay, sure. Full disclaimer, this is my first event for The Other Merlin, so you get the first pitch. So this is my first crack at it. So I am a best-selling young adult author of contemporary novels, mostly. I wrote The Beginning of Everything, Extraordinary Means, You Don't Live Here, and Invisible Ghosts, and this is my first foray into writing YA fantasy. So The Other Merlin is, as you said, a feminist retelling of King Arthur with a couple of twists. So The Other Merlin is the story of Emery Merlin, who is historical, like, court wizard Merlin's teenage daughter. She has an identical twin, Emmett, and he's always been, like, favored. Like, their father taught him more magic, and Emery has found this enormously unfair. So when her father is missing and her brother is summoned to... King Uther's court to be the next court wizard, she's incredibly jealous, and then when her brother has a misfired spell and can't go after all, she dresses up as him and goes in his place, meets a young, very bookish, very cute Prince Arthur, a guard named Lancelot, an annoying princess named Guinevere, a very cute royal named Gawain, and hilarity ensues as she is dressed as a boy and is causing all kinds of mischief at the castle.
1: No, that's perfect. And I love having authors where this is one of the first times they're talking about their books, because I always feel like it brings up stuff and they find stuff and they're like, I hadn't thought about that before. So it's perfect. You mentioned in that, too, that this is your first fantasy novel. And I was wondering if you've always been a fan of fantasy or if this was sort of a brand new genre for you to explore. Did you think you would move into fantasy eventually? Or how did that come to be?
0: I always wanted to write YA fantasy. It's so weird to me that I had this career writing contemporary. When I was 13, my parents gave me the Harry Potter series to read, and I read the first three books in like two days and decided that I wanted to become an author and that I wanted to write fantasy. From there, I wrote a lot of practice novels as a teenager that are just like terrible, essentially fan fiction. So the first two full books that I wrote were middle grade fantasy, and then I wound up writing YA contemporary, but I feel like even though I've kept my bones writing contemporary, I've always had my heart in fantasy, and I've been trying to get back to that childhood dream and get back to writing stories about magic and wizards, because I've always been drawn to them but i've always been drawn to in contemporary novels the sort of emotional journeys that characters go on because i find those really really relatable and i find that a lot of the time in fantasy stories you get hundreds of pages of people just like angrily riding a horse through the woods and camping or pages and pages of battle scenes that's just like people flinging magic at each other while they fall down and cough up blood I was just like, oh, this is so boring. When is everyone going to like flirt and crack jokes? So I feel like I married the two things that were in my heart and soul together for this book. So yeah, this has been, I think, a long time coming for me. I wasn't just sitting there with my whole pile of contemporary novels going, what could I do that's different? So this is where I was always meant to wind up.
1: That's awesome. And I will say that was something about your book that definitely really struck me was the lack of those really long, like, and now they're throwing magic at each. What is happening? Or like the never ending camping scenes where it's just like, we get it. You're on a long journey. Can we lead the process up? You filled all of that with just so much witty banter that the minute it was done, I was like, oh, okay, cool. We're moving on. Perfect. Exactly what I wanted. You blended it so, so well. And I was also wondering, yeah, of course. Along with the fantasy element, I think Arthurian legends, specifically, stories about King Arthur, come and go a lot. They're a very popular mythology. But we at Bookmarked and Bookstacked actually just recently read Tracy Dion's Legendborn for our book club, which is another King Arthur. I was wondering what inspired you to take on this specific mythology and put the spin on it that you did.
0: Oh, I love that question. I read Legendborn like a few months ago. I was trying to avoid any YA Arthurian things. But I just heard such good things, and it was such a wonderful book. I'm glad I read it. And our books are very different, thankfully. Yeah, I didn't mean to set out and write a King Arthur novel. It just sort of happened. There were a couple of things that I was thinking about. And I started writing this book four years ago. It was a side project for me in between writing contemporary novels. So I had seen this obscure Japanese film called A Boy and His Samurai, which is like about a time traveling samurai who goes on a baking contest and does childcare for like a feminist single mother in modern day Japan. And it's very charming. And my husband, who's a TV producer, we were talking about adapting that the movie and he's like, oh, maybe it would be King Arthur. So I had King Arthur in my head. And then I was watching all of these Korean dramas, which is really the only way that you can make me run on a treadmill is to say like, okay, but you can watch a K-drama when you do it and I will run, but like not for anything else. So I got really into the gender bender ones. So I had King Arthur and then I had gender bender in my head. And I started thinking about all of my favorite gender bender stories and how so many of them have this moment when the boy is falling for the girl in disguise, he thinks he might be queer and just recoils. And it's like, oh, you know, no, I can't like this person. I'm like, why? You know, I've always wondered like as a queer person, what is so bad about that? And it makes me stop rooting for the romances. And I think there's a lot of gay panic that happens in K-dramas. And I was thinking about that. And then I was thinking about King Arthur and how the legend never made sense to me because it was like the most boring version of the story possible. And we also have this cultural zeitgeist concept of what it is, the same way that we have this concept of what the story of Frankenstein is. And then you read it or you watch the movies and you're like, oh, this narrative that plays out in my head is not the actual story. And I feel like that's the same with King Arthur. And I'm like, why do we care? Why is there this straight white boy who becomes the king and is so bothered by everyone else not having such a great life that he needs to usher in this golden age of equality? Why him? Like what happened in his childhood that made him give a crap. So I was thinking about that and I was thinking about the gay panic in gender bender stories. And I was like, well, maybe I'll just retell King Arthur. So it isn't just about an annoying, fancy king whose wife cheats on him with his best friend. End of story. Maybe I'll just redo it so that we get the story of a reluctant young prince. Who, through the people in his life and his own tragedies and his own experiences, winds up really realizing that there is something fundamentally wrong with the society in which he's been raised and trying to come to terms with having to become king in the sense of, well, I can be the one to change it and help out everyone who I care about and like make things right. So if I have to do this thing that I don't want to do, at least I'm going to do it in a way that puts good out into the world. And obviously, that's how I came up with my young Prince Arthur character.
1: Yeah, there's so much more motivation to what he's doing. And I think sometimes there's... This strange thing that happens with YA characters who are, like, destined to rule, where they just have a stronger sense of morality than their parents without a reason for it. It's just Mm -hmm. like, they're the young people, and so they care about other people, and that's the whole reason. Whereas with this story, it does feel like there's so much more to Arthur about why he specifically cares and what has happened in his life and what he has seen happen that gives so much more depth. And I absolutely loved that. And I also really love what you said about the gender bend element of your story and especially the gay panic and the homophobia that can sometimes come along with those stories because I think you did a fantastic job of navigating that in your story and making sure that those moments never happened, that even when Arthur was finding himself attracted to someone he believed to be a male, even though that hadn't happened before, that there was no feeling of, oh no, what's happening? It was just like, okay, this is something else that's going on, and let's see what that's about. And something else that you did really, really well is that when Emery was pretending to be a boy, there weren't these moments of, like, hyper-masculinity for laughs where she, like, grunted or did something silly. She just was herself, but the world saw her as her brother rather than her. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about developing Emery and the difference between writing Emery when she was pretending to be Emmett and writing Emery when she was able to be herself?
0: Oh, that's such a good question. Wow, I love that. And I love that you noticed that. I mean, I watched She's the Man when I was younger and like that movie imprinted on me. Oh my God, it was so funny. But it really doesn't hold up, you know, because it does have that leaning into one's gender expression for laughs. That's That's exactly what
1: I was thinking about, actually, that movie, because I watched (laughs) it recently and I was like, Ooh, this isn't funny anymore. And I think that was part of the reason why I saw that because I was like, oh, this doesn't have that. And it's so much better.
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I just don't think that it's particularly funny to make fun of how someone like expresses their gender and their self. And I feel like laughs can come from places of cleverness. So that's, what I tried to write but I mean I just keep thinking about that movie she's the man now I'm like resisting the like my favorite's Gouda line but like too late I did it it's on your podcast oh <laughs> <Ugh. laughs> okay so we were talking about like Emery's gender expression <laughs> so I yeah when she's playing the role of her brother it's really interesting because you know she's a queer character and she's totally fine with being bisexual or being pansexual. Like, the words didn't exist in the 1500s, so we just sort of say interested in anyone, regardless of their gender in the story. But, yeah, she's into people. And I think she's always just felt really comfortable with that. And I wanted to write a society where that was the case. I think I recently saw Netflix's Bridgerton series, And I'm not going to lie, it broke my heart a little bit because I was so excited for the adaptation. And, you know, the books aren't particularly diverse, but the series adaptation is so wonderfully diverse. But then there's, you know, the moment where... I think it's Benedict gets really into art and painting and falls into this queer culture that's going on and they have to hide. And it's shameful. And I'm like, really, you can be any race, but you still can't be queer. What a bummer. I really wish that that would have been fine. So like that made me go back through a lot when I was Revising this book and just really lean in even more heavily to the, it is totally okay to have any sexuality, to be any race. Because, you know, in fantasy stories, they're escapist. And I hate when they're exclusionary. And I mean, I think we all know what the big majorly exclusionary fantasy series of our childhood is. And it sucks. It sucks to see the gates slammed in your face and to be told this magic isn't for you. And I was like, screw that. My magic is for anyone. So, <laughs> you know, every existing in this I guess, youth culture, because it doesn't exist so much with the older characters, but with the characters her age, where everyone's pretty woke and it's fine. So she doesn't need to play locker room antics with the guys. Everyone's just accepting and fine. So she's just able to be herself and she's just sort of perceived as a person. I definitely had some moments of panic, but they weren't gender related. They were more like, oh my God, this sword has fallen in the lake. You know, Arthur's telling me to get naked so we can jump in and go after it. And her panic of like, I cannot get naked. Things like that versus things like, I need to grunt now or something. I think also having a character who is having to portray being a boy when she isn't. I definitely had some fun with, I don't think this is spoilery, like a scene where Gawain takes her out to a brothel just to watch her squirm. But she is not squirming. She's like happily flirting along with all of the ladies. And he is just like pissed. He's like, why isn't this working? <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's not working. Take that. And
1: that was something I love, too, especially with the dialogue you created and the banter between all of them, is that all of them kind of dished it out and got it back. They were friends and they were able to speak to each other the way friends speak to each other. And more importantly, that Emery didn't lose that when suddenly they saw her as a girl rather than a boy. She was still, I really, I do love the moment where they discover what's happening and they're like, but you're a lady. And she's like, come on, guys, like we've been through too much. Can we just move on? It was just, it was so funny how over it she already was. I just loved the dialogue in general and the banter that all these characters had with each other. Do you think that was something that came out of writing contemporary novels first and then sort of implanting that in this more traditional setting? Or was that something you knew you wanted, like, I'm changing Arthur legend for the better and this is one of the ways that's happening?
0: I think I don't do it on purpose. I've been accused a lot of the time, like when I used to make YouTube videos, saying, wow, you write the way you talk. Um, and I think that's very true. Like, I definitely wanted the characters to have a lot of contemporary modern banter and to use both modern slang and historical slang and their own made up slang that is not historical. Like my poor copy editor almost lost her mind. She's like, so there's like seven languages in this and like half the stuff's historically accurate and half of it isn't. And I'm like, yeah, go nuts. I always write with a humorous tone, right? There's like the John Green quote, right? You have a choice in how you're going to tell sad stories. I always gear toward humor. Even if there's a scene where someone is dying, I'm like, oh, there needs to be good jokes. You need to be laughing right now in the face of death. I try and picture my readers and a lot of the time I'm like, oh, I don't want to make you cry uncontrollably on your beach vacation, Tears are great. I love tears, don't get me wrong. But like a couple of chuckles along the way, you know, I'll toss those in. But yeah, I think it's just sort of how I write. I didn't realize that I wrote comedy until people started describing this as comedy because my other books are just so sort of sad and heavy in a way that like a lighthearted tone to the dialogue doesn't change the fact that they're about teenagers dealing with death. So (laughs) I think in this one, they're just, you know, teenagers dealing with magic swords, so it's fine.
1: Yeah, and there are serious stakes to the story. Obviously, with King Arthur stories, there's always serious stakes of, like, the fate of the world, but you are laughing along the way. I think that's so important for any genre. I get frustrated with books where I'm like, just because this is whatever doesn't mean there can't be jokes along the way, like, doesn't mean I can't be laughing, because there are always jokes in life, and I think yeah. you've, you've captured that really, really well here. I also wanted to talk a little bit about, there's a wonderful passage in your book where Emery kind of explains her, like you said, it, bisexuality, though that's not really the word she uses because they didn't have that language, but her attraction to everybody, sort of regardless of gender. And I was wondering if you had talked just a little bit about what inspired you to include that element as part of your story, especially in a traditional fantasy
0: setting. Oh, I'm so glad you like that. So I'm bisexual, and I never saw characters like me in fantasy stories and I was just, just like, you know what? We have enough boys who save the world and, you know, girls who just fall in love with hot princes. Why don't I just write a kick-ass wizard who's just casually bisexual? And it's just one piece of her. There are so many elements to her personality and it's not a big thing. And it's not made into a big thing. And it's not a coming out story. And it's not a story about homophobia or queer phobia. It's just the story where characters can be attracted to each other and can be friends with one another and everyone is just existing in this really like inclusive space. But also there's magic and swords that cure hangovers and like portals to other worlds and wizards and princes of course. I loved that moment
1: too where Lance was like, I'm not feeling so great, and grabs the sword and is like, oh look at that, hangover's gone. Every fantasy needs that. I don't know where this has been all of our lives, but it was perfect.
0: Thank Um, you. Yeah, I was so proud of myself when I came up with the moment where they were testing Excalibur, like after they get the sword Excalibur. I was like, okay, this is three teenagers, two teenage boys. There is no way they are going to have any sense of decorum about this magic sword. They are 100% trying it out, and it is going to be hysterical and a mess. So why doesn't the sword just randomly cure hangovers? And why don't they make jokes about like slaying each other's nipples with it? I had so much fun writing that. I was writing it in a very silent 17th century library in France. And I just had to bite my tongue because I really would have been on the floor laughing. It's probably... (laughs) One of my favorite scenes. I don't know why magical objects are taken so seriously. I feel like they should all have secret weird superpowers to them that you can unlock. Yeah, it's a tragedy, that none of the objects from my favorite high fantasy series typically could cure hangovers, really. It's very useful.
1: No one thought to give that a go, but when you have three teenagers with a magical sword, they're like, let's get some real usefulness out of this thing.
0: Seriously, how often do you use a magic sword that slays your enemies in battle versus the sword you're wearing is going to make it so that you can party all night and then still be chill in the morning when your tutors need you to like learn Latin.
1: That should be the real purpose of all of these items. I don't know why it's (laughs) not. Something else I wanted to talk to you about too, as we're talking about teenagers, I think you did a really good job in your book of developing the more adult characters, the King and some of the other courtiers. Sometimes I feel like in YA stories, especially YA stories where there's a king and a prince and the prince doesn't necessarily agree with the king and the king is getting old so it's like ah eh, when he leaves us we'll finally get the way we want The adults can become this stonewall opponent where it's just like we have to get through them. We have to wait until they're gone, until we can have what we want. But your characters have their own motives and desires that help us understand what's actually going on. You have these moments where they're definitely opponents and they're obstacles to what the teenagers are trying to do. But you also have these moments where these sort of softer moments where they show that they do care about their kids and they do have emotions and desires that the kids maybe didn't expect or didn't know about, where they accept them for who they are, they're just also trying to run the country. And so I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit about how you developed these adult characters in your story, because I think you did such a good job with it.
0: Oh, thank you. I feel like I never really had much agency or story to a lot of the adult characters in my contemporary YA, because they're just mom and dad. And as much as you can put in the relationship that they have with their kids, it's not really relevant to first person YA narratives to go into too much depth with the parents or with other adults, or at least it wasn't in my stories. And so I always was like, oh, I really, I really want to find a way to bring those stories in. I know that in my favorite CW series, there's always a red plot and a blue plot. I wouldn't call it like an A plot and a B plot, because I think sometimes they would have equal weight within the story. So you just color code as opposed to like assigning letters, but shows like Gossip Girl or The O.C. or Gilmore Girls, there was always a story amongst the adults who all were like of one generation and knew each other. And then there was a story amongst the teenagers and there was a meeting ground of those stories within the narrative that made both of them sort of tie together, even if they weren't really about the same thing, they were like traveling along the same path. And I feel like I always loved how these TV shows managed to do that, and I was like, ooh, I wonder, I wonder if I can manage to do that in this, especially because I really, really want this to be adapted into a TV series, I'm not gonna lie. So, you know, let's make it easy for Hollywood. But also... <laughs> Yeah, I I think in a kingdom like Camelot where we're talking about these adults who make the policy and create the culture, and you have these teenagers who are really frustrated by what that culture is and like its limitations, you need to understand where the older characters are coming from, and why they might agree with something but not find a way to like enact it.
1: Yeah, definitely. I love that, and oh, definitely rooting for this to be a TV show. That would be incredible. So cool. But yeah, there definitely is a bit more room in fantasy novels because of the more global elements happening to give those parents a little bit of room. And, and I really like how you did that in your story. I feel like this is all just becoming like, all oh, the things I like about Emery, but she's amazing. So it's fine.
0: Poor if Arthur. I, he's so offended. He's like, I'll just go in the library, guys. It's fine. Just ignore me.
1: He always gets all the attention. He doesn't need any more attention. He's fine. He's happy in the library. It's fine. He really is. Speaking of libraries and learning, so Emery has a lot of natural magical ability, but the story is also about the power and importance of learning and growing into your powers. And you've got a little bit of like a magic school vibe. It's sort of a subtle theme, but I think it's a really important one about even if something you're not 100% perfect at something right away, practice and learning really does make a difference. And I think that's so important, especially in stories about magic or chosen ones or things like that, that nothing happens without some sort of work or some sort of continual effort to learn. And I was wondering if that was something you were conscious of as you were plotting the book or if it just kind of came naturally with telling the story.
0: I was definitely conscious of it. I love that you picked up on the magic school vibes. I am such trash for dark academia. Like You have no idea how many times I read The Secret History when I was in college. I carried a copy around in my bag for three years straight until the cover disintegrated. So I am... Always a fan of any stories that have school elements, especially castles and like old libraries and towers and learning as well. I think it's really disappointing in a way when you come to stories that are set in fantasy worlds where the characters don't have to apply themselves to be good at anything while you're sitting here copying down your like French verb conjugations. It just feels like they're not really so relatable. But for me, I wanted Emery to be someone who needed to have a bit of a reckoning with her natural ability versus how hard she needed to work to become the wizard that she needed to be. Back home, you know, in her small village, and she's doing special effects for the theater, you know, she was great. She could conjure illusions. That was all she needed to be. But choosing to step into this role and to, you know, want to be a court wizard and defend the kingdom, she needed to be more. And she knew that her work ethic and her ability, like, I loved writing that. And I'm just such a nerd for this stuff. All of the herbs and the historical remedies are accurate, actually. (laughs) Like, they really did prescribe people, like, for hangovers to drink eel juice with cabbage. That was, like, what the royal physicians would prescribe. Oh, that's terrible. So, yeah, I mean, I just really wanted to write characters who connected over a shared love of learning and respect of knowledge. You so rarely see that in fantasy. You usually see somebody who's 18 and, like, really buff and is the world's best swordsman, just apparently. They run around with their shirt off all the time, training, and everyone's like, oh, wow, you know, they're so great. Like, they don't need to learn anything else. Or, you know, they're so magical. They just need to, like, learn one trick and then they can just do any spells. And I hate that. I like seeing characters lean into their potential and work for it. I think that's something that we should aspire to. I think a lot of the time, even just as a young writer, I was really not good enough and I had to work for it. Like I relate to Emery where I'm like, well, I had a natural talent and ability, but I really needed to work on that to be able to write professionally. And, you know, whatever it is that readers want to do, hopefully it's relatable, even though it's magic.
1: Yeah. And I think it's so important to remember that natural talent And work ethic are not mutually exclusive. It's not like you're either really talented and don't have to try or you have to kill yourself trying to reach unreachable potential of someone who can just like do it literally magically without having (laughs) to think about it. And I love that your story doesn't have that. Everyone sort of works for for what they want. Even Arthur decides that he should know how to... (laughs) Arthur decides he should know how to use a sword, which I think is like, (laughs) no kidding, Arthur, but fine. And so he decides to start working with the guard. Like, all these little moments that are just so wonderful seeing the characters build and learn. I think especially sometimes in fantasy, you get that problem of so much is put on kids' shoulders so quickly that they don't even have time. They just have to go with what they know how to do because they don't have time Mm -hmm. to learn. Whereas you've really given your characters some real time to to grow into themselves and Thank and I love that.
0: Yeah, I want to oh. spare them. They don't need to like find a magic sword and have 48 hours before they need to go into battle with the most powerful magician that ever lived you know and they're like a teenager and they've just found this sword and they're just like what's going on for me those books i'm just like oh here we go here's a 200 page battle scene but for this one yeah i i'm so glad you brought up arthur working with the guard that was my favorite thing where he like humbles himself And everyone is like, you are the Prince of Camelot. And he's like, I am really crappy at fighting, guys. I'm going to run laps with the castle guard until I fix this. And his friends are like, yes, smart move. (laughs) I just thought that was so cute. I loved writing all of those scenes. And the guards play a bigger part in book two. Spoiler.
1: No, that's awesome. This is not the only book in the series. Thank goodness. (laughs) If this was the end after the podcast, I'd be like, so what else happens? Like, tell me more. So is there sort of a plan right now for how many books we might get? Do you know, do you have it sort of figured out in your head? Or is there something sort of more formal about how many books we might get in the series?
0: Uh, Right now, it's going to be a trilogy. There are going to be three. I'm almost done with the second one. Like, I'm really, really close to being done, and I'm writing Act 3 right now. It's all in like pieces in Scrivener with so many notes on the side. It's, oh God, my drafting process is a mess. So I'm hoping there are going to be three. I was thinking that I could do a prequel or a sequel book or trilogy. I have some ideas, but I also have something else that I really, really want to write next that I was just telling my team about. So we'll see. Yeah, I think three books seems like a good epic amount of books to tell the story and... As somebody who's never written a series before, like a YA series, it's been really weird to jump back into the world and revisit it. It's been very fun. I think three is the right number. I say that and then there's going to be like four and like a quarter that's like some novella from like the swords perspective or something. I know right now, right now it's three. Actually, a sword, a sword novella would be really funny. I was going to say, um, can that be a real thing? Because that sounds awesome. <laughs> that, maybe that's going to be like the pre-order incentive for book two is like pre-order book two and get a, get a short story from the point of view of all the magic swords.
1: Like, oh, another hangover. What are we doing? (laughs) Guys, (laughs) calm
0: down. This is so boring. Stop poking each other. Stop it. Go to battle.
1: It would be incredible. That definitely needs to be a thing now. So that's something to look forward to. And actually, my last question that I wanted to ask you, because I was really interested, I was reading your acknowledgments at the end of the book, and I saw that you wrote that this book was actually written as a product or during the pandemic. And I was really curious as like you as a writer, how that might've either affected the story or maybe changed anything, or if you felt it had any consequence to what you were writing at all.
0: I think it did. And just now like looking back on it, I'm like, oh wow. Now I see exactly why it's such cheerful, lighthearted read, because when I was writing it, I needed to be writing something fun and cheerful. I needed the doom and gloom gone. And I wanted to write something just really escapist. I sold the book series in April of 2020, and I had written like maybe just under 200 pages of the first book, so I needed to dive back into it. I mean, I think that's why it's just a really fun read because I just didn't have it in my heart to put any more sadness into the world. The world was depressing enough. And I had been writing the book in the past, mostly in France. And then I was stuck writing it at home, which was, like, we had just moved and we hadn't fully moved in. We didn't have even enough furniture. So it was just in a pile of boxes, you know, with, like, paper blinds taped up. And it was, oh, God, the least aesthetic place to be, dreaming of medieval England. But I think it informed the story just in a way where it's, I think, the most entertaining story I've ever written and, like, the least depressing.
1: That's awesome, and I love that that's your fantasy story. It's the most entertaining and the least depressing, because I think that's so important for fantasy is to, like, keep it happy. And I'm so glad that that came out of all the craziness of 2020. You definitely accomplished that. You just, you feel good reading this book, and you get laughs out of it, and there's, like, a great story to follow. And so I'm sorry that it was, like, a rough process for you, but I'm so happy this is what we got out of it. So it works. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, the happy factor was a big thing for me with this one. It was just like, how can I write something soothing? I was finding it really hard to get into reading. Like my love of books sort of fell away for a moment and that had never happened to me. And I was hearing other people saying that and that they were finding it difficult to read and difficult to like escape into the things that they had once found a lot of comfort in. And so I tried to I tried to take that to heart in a really big way when I was writing this. I was like, I'm going to let myself have fun with it. If I'm having fun with it readers, are going to have fun with it and so much of the fantasy books that I read really have given me a headache with all of the world building that you need to like keep in mind who are these characters and what's going on so I tried to go like really really light on the world building in that way where it's just a bit of a feel-good romance with swords and sorcery.
1: It's a perfect blend of like feel-good and escapism that you want to get from fantasy like it so no I think you absolutely accomplished that. So to wrap things up, where can our listeners learn more about you and your books?
0: It's the best place to do that. I would have to say the internet. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Have you heard of it? It's really trendy right now. Yeah. So I am on Instagram. It's just at Robin Schneider and I'm on TikTok. It's at real Robin Schneider. I'm having fun on book talk right now I honestly resisted as long as I could but you know I'm just gonna go make a fool of myself because it looks like everyone was just having such a great time without me so I'm there now
1: that's awesome and hopefully we'll get some other Merlin content on tiktok soon as the book is coming out Thank you so much for talking with us today, Robin. It was so wonderful to get to speak with you and to get to hear about your book. I feel like talking to you was just as much fun as reading your book, which is always the best. So thank you so much.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me. This was great.
1: Awesome. And thanks all of you for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. We're at Bookmarked YA. You can follow Bookstacked on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like the show, don't forget to download and leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow me on Instagram at Plucky Bookmarks. I hope you enjoyed the show, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.